All right, so we're going to start by talking about Burmese pythons. You guys know about Burmese pythons? All right, here's the thing. I have some pretty cool pictures um, of Burmese pythons for the slides that we don't have anymore. Um, the first picture was just of a Burmese python um, because uh, in a Florida Everglades is what it was. You guys know about the Burmese python problem in the Florida Everglades? Has anybody else got YouTube? Anybody else gone down this YouTube rabbit trail? You know what I mean? Like you're trying to Google like how to replace a doorknob and by the end of it you're watching giraffes fight. You know what I mean? Okay, so I was on one of these YouTube rabbit trails and I came across Burmese python problems in Florida. So here's what's going on. Back in the 70s, everybody thought it'd be cute to get a Burmese python as a pet. Because you buy them when they're little and they're like this, okay? And I didn't look this up, but I think they get like 20 feet. I saw one where it was like a bunch of guys had killed one and they, had, they were all holding it. It was pretty long, you know, 15 or 20 feet. These things are huge. The problem is they're not native to Florida, right? They're, they're not supposed to be in Florida. And so everybody got them and decided, eh, these pets are kind of big, and they just threw them outside into the bushes behind their house. And these Burmese pythons are reproducing at a rate that is absolutely destroying the Florida ecosystem because they're not supposed to be there. So they're killing all of the little animals, you know, and when one animal like that gets introduced, it messes up the whole flow of everything. And so um, <clears throat> they're killing birds, mammals. They kill a lot of pets. You know, a lot of dogs just kind of go missing in Florida when they're out running and stuff. Like, it's pretty bad. It's a huge problem. And they have no idea what to do about it. They've tried a bunch of different solutions. So first thing they tried was, well, let's start with education. First, we got to teach people to stop throwing their pets into the wild. At least then we won't have more getting added to the system. Uh, then they tried hunting programs. So there are people like, okay, I grew up in San Francisco, so I only know these people from TV, let's be honest, and I don't really go anywhere. But you know the guy with the big truck and he wears camo stuff to Walmart? You know this guy that I'm talking about? So Florida pays that guy to go kill pythons. And so there's guys like that. They have these big trucks, and they go out there, and their whole job is to just kill pythons. Like, I forget how much you get, 10 bucks a head or something like that. But they go out there all day, and they're just killing pythons, shooting pythons, and, um, you know, these redneck guys, they're loving it. It's a whole job. They've tried, so they've tried hunting them. They've tried just setting traps and capturing them. Um, one of my favorite things was they trained um, dogs to sniff out the pythons. All right, I'm going to say the word pregnant, but let's be honest, I don't know anything about pythons and snakes. They lay eggs, right? Somehow they get pregnant before, right before they have a bunch of eggs in their guts or whatever. So they train the dogs to find those pythons. So right before there's 50 more that get released into the wild, the dogs go out and find them and get them. I thought that was a pretty cool one. Um, they tried to release a bunch of sterile male pythons out there to um, reduce the number of viable eggs. Uh, that get, you know, born or whatever. So they're trying all this stuff, but here's the problem. Uh, none of it's working, right? Just more and more and more pythons. They have no idea what they're going to do. Now, here's the setup. Here's, here's why this matters. Um, like I said, these, these snakes are really messing up the ecosystem in Florida. They don't belong there. They're not native. They're not natural. Um, they hurt everything that they come across. And that's a really good picture of what sin is and what sin does. Sin works the exact same way. It's not native. Right, we live in a world full of sin. You can walk outside and you can see it happen. We, you know, you can see the effects of sin everywhere, and especially in a city like, you know, I mean, we get kind of the reputation, right? We're the bad city, we're San Francisco. Like I was listening to a sermon once of a guy in Albuquerque or somewhere, somewhere in New Mexico, I think. And he said, he was talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. He's doing a, a sermon on Sodom and Gomorrah. And he goes, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah is like a modern-day version of what's a sinful city that you guys all think of? And half of the crowd shouted San Francisco and half the crowd shouted Vegas, right? Those were the two. So that, that's kind of our reputation, right? Because it's true. You walk around, there's all kinds of stuff. There's exploitation, there's drug use, there's... Um, but, I mean, that's like the, the sins we don't like, right? But then you walk downtown, and there's the sins of the rich guys who are exploiting people all over the world and who are, you know, there's a lot of sin in our city. But then, also, there's a lot of sin in us, Right? There's in who we are, uh, just in the way that we behave, in the way that we think, in the way that we make decisions, there's still a lot of sin. And um, <clears throat> sin, so it's not native. It's not supposed to be here, though. We're just so used to it. We think this is how the world is going to be. I'm just a sinner. That guy's a sinner. The drug guy on the corner is a sinner. The, you know, the, the crooked cop, whatever it is. Just all these, we just think this is just the, the state of the world. But we read in the Bible, it's not really the state of the world, is it? 
right? God created the world, and what did he say? That's eh, pretty good, right? That's a paraphrase, but I think that's what he said. Pretty, pretty good. Right, yeah, anyway, uh, <laughs> and so he, he, he made it without sin, and we're the ones that introduced sin into this world. So when we look around this sin, it's not natural. It's not supposed to be like this. And what else sin does is it kills and it destroys everything in its wake, right? Just like these pythons, they're tearing up the ecosystem of Florida. They're killing, I don't know, for some reason, apparently people want rats in the ecosystem. I don't know. I read a whole thing about how they're killing all the rats, but they're killing all the other animals too. And then some of the bigger animals that are supposed to eat, some of those smaller animals don't have anything to eat, and it's causing all these problems. And that's exactly what sin does. We think, well, it's just this small little thing. I'm just going to throw it into the bushes, right? I'm just going to let it live outside behind my house. And then it grows big, and it starts causing all these problems. So then what do we do? Just like Florida, right? By the way, the point of this sermon is not be like Florida. I don't really know a lot about Florida, but I'm pretty sure we don't want to be like Florida. But anyway, um, so then we... Just like Florida, what do we do? We try to do something about it. And most of our efforts work about as well as what Florida has tried with these snakes. So we've tried hunting it, right? We try hunting our sin. We try killing it on our own, right? Has anybody ever had any success, really, just white-knuckling it and trying to get over the sin in their life? No. Uh, right? Just like these snakes, every time you, you put one sin down on your own, 50 more pop up behind you. And you're like, oh, I have all this success. Look at this dead snake. And then you turn around and you realize, oh, there's all these other ones too. And they just grow. Sin grows and it grows and it grows in our lives. Um, uh, you train like, you know, they train the dogs, right? Oh, well, maybe I want to get somebody else to help me with this. You know, we're going to do this as a team effort, right? Well, that doesn't always work either. Still barely makes a dent. Well, we're going to try to capture these snakes. We're going to try to contain the sin. Mm, that never really works either, right? I'm going to set boundaries. I can sin this much no more. That, that's never a good idea. It, whatever we try, it never works. And all of human history is the story of humanity trying to do something about this. We try all these different things. We're, trying to, we're struggling with it. We're trying to tame sin. Right? We're trying to push down its effects, and it doesn't work. And so the answer to all of this is, well, we'll get to it at the end. Right? I, want, I just want to set the stage. We'll get to this at the end. But for now, I want to just start with the problem as we look at these two chapters of Ezekiel. Sin is not a minor problem. Right? Sin is not like, I don't know, hangnail. Right? You have a hangnail. Anybody had a hangnail recently? Stinks, right? Trying to type something. You know it's the worst? Or like, let's not say a hangnail. Let's say a cut. Okay? You ever cut your, your phone thumb and you got to put a Band-Aid on it and now you can't do your phone all day? Oh, that's brutal, right? That's a pretty minor problem, right? Versus something is a big problem like cancer or, I don't know, like a big disease. We think of sin like that minor little cut. It's not. Right? Sin is that big disease. So that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is all of our efforts to stamp it out really haven't made any sort of a dent. All the stuff that we're trying doesn't really work. Right? We're just, sin is just reproducing like pythons. Right? It's, just, it's happening over and over again. So today, we're in this section of Ezekiel. We're just walking through the whole book of Ezekiel. And in this section of Ezekiel, God is getting very serious with his people about sin. So the people are in exile. Uh, some of the people are in exile, but the big exile has not happened yet. So a lot of the book of Ezekiel happens between the second and third time Nebuchadnezzar takes people captive. The third time he does it, he destroys the whole city of Jerusalem. He destroys the temple. He burns the whole, you know, the temple, the whole city to the ground. He takes all the like temple treasures and he takes them to Babylon um, and puts them in his castle, you know, or whatever, like the the, the treasury in Babylon. Um, so a, a lot of these prophecies in the book of Ezekiel are happening between those two. So between chapter 1 and chapter 33 is between those two exiles. When chapter 33 hits, the whole tone of the book changes from judgment and like the book is pretty harsh to grace and here's why and here's all this stuff. So we're kind of right in the middle of this section where God is getting really serious with his people and he's, he's starting to talk about this judgment that's coming through King Nebuchadnezzar. So try to follow along uh, we're going to read chapter 6 and, th and chapter 7 today. We're going to try to fly through this. Um, the word of the Lord came to me, verse 1. So Ezekiel again is prophesying to these exiles, um, and he's not speaking for himself. Do you remember in um, uh, the first three chapters where Ezekiel is called to the ministry, one of the things that God does to him that's funny and kind of mean is he makes him mute. Except when you're speaking to the people, except when you're preaching and prophesying, you don't get to talk ever. 
And then last week we read about all these sign acts that Ezekiel had to perform. Remember, go lay on your side for like a year and a half. And uh, the people will just sit there and watch you. And then get up and build this Lego city and then siege it and then cut your hair with a sword and all this stuff. So it, that whole process of last, last week's sermon took like a year and a half. And so now with his week, uh, this is all part of that same story. This is right after that. Now with that weak voice that he hasn't really used in over a year, the word of the Lord came to me. Here's the, here's the prophecy. Son of man, face the mountains and prophesy against them. Literally what he says is set your face on the mountains. Um, turn towards Jerusalem. Remember, he's doing all these like skits. So this is another one of these skits. Turn towards Jerusalem and prophesy. Most likely, this is what happened. The people were taken east uh, to Babylon. And they were living in a, um, a, like a suburb of Babylon, kind of like, I don't know, 40 or 50 miles outside of Babylon in a farming community. They were growing a lot of the food for the Babylonians as almost slaves. And they're there, and they're, they're longing for the temple. And so most likely the practice was these Jewish folks in exile would get up, and when they would pray, they would face Jerusalem. They would face west, because that was the direction of the temple. Because that's where God's presence lived, and we're going to talk all about that in the next few weeks, about the presence of God in the temple. And so they're, they're facing west to pray. And so God says, you know that thing that these guys are all doing where they're facing west to pray. I want you to do that. I want you to get up and I want you to turn towards the temple. I want you to turn towards Jerusalem and I want you to prophesy. And they're going to think, oh, this is probably going to be good news. But almost nothing that he says here today is good news. Look at verse three. So this is what you're to say to the mountains. Mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord, of Yahweh. This is what Yahweh, the Lord God, says to the mountains and the hills and to the ravines and the valleys. I'm about to bring a sword against you and I, I will destroy your high places. So uh, right away, this prayer, this prophecy is not a lot like the ones we do in church. Right? I get up and pray, and I say, Lord, be here today. Be among your people. Right? These are nice things to say. Ezekiel is not saying nice things. He says, God says, imagine if I got up in church one day, and I said, hey, guys, I have a message for you from the Lord. God says... All of you are about to get mugged and shot and die on the way home from church tonight. Let's pray. Amen. Right? Like, most of you, wait, time out. What? But the backstory here is, he's not really just saying God is randomly going to bring swords against you. He's saying, do you remember the deal you made with God where if you follow him and you worship him, here's the blessings of the covenant from Deuteronomy. And if you don't, here's the curses of the covenant. And the people looked at both of these columns in Deuteronomy with Moses, and they said, yeah, that sounds good. We're going we're gonna to sign up for this deal. But some of these curses from Leviticus and Deuteronomy, they're in a few places. Leviticus, I will bring a sword upon you. They shall execute vengeance for the covenant. Right? So if you don't do this, I'm, literally the same phrase, I'm going to bring a sword, meaning like violence and the armies are coming. Another one in Leviticus, I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheath the sword after you. Then your land will be a desolation, and your cities will be a waste. So he says, look, I'm bringing the sword. He also says in this verse in Ezekiel, and I'm going to destroy your high places. Now, we've talked a little bit about this, but let me explain this again. This was a Canaanite practice, the idea of high places. And the thinking, this was their thinking in the ancient world. The gods are up there somewhere. So the closer we are to them, I guess the better reception we'll get, right? The, the more bars we'll get on our phone, right? We got to get up high. And then when we get up high, we got to build up these kind of high altars. So they put up all these altars all over the land of Israel uh, to Yahweh, but they did it in the practice of the Canaanite religions. So they're kind of mixing these Canaanite pagan religions and the religion of God. And God is not having it. He doesn't like it. He says, look, I've not asked you to build these high places. This is not the way that you're supposed to worship me, but this is how you're doing it. And when you read through the book of Kings and Chronicles, one of the things that all the kings are judged, you know, Hezekiah lived this many years and, you know, he expanded the land and he did this, but, you know, it always says either they took the high places down or they didn't. So he was a really good guy, but he didn't even take the high places down, right? He didn't destroy these high places. And so here's the thing. These people of Israel, they kept doing this. Um, they were supposed to go into the land of Canaan, wipe them out, and the ones that were left, they were supposed to be a light to the nations. They were supposed to, to, to live in a way that the nations looked at them and go, I want to worship that God. 
But instead what happened is they looked at the Canaanite gods and said, I want to worship those ones. They became the Canaanites. Now, this is the real reason today I'm bummed about the projector. I don't use a lot of graphics and slides in sermons, as you guys know. We just kind of do the text behind me. Today I was going to show you a meme. You guys know the meme from Star Wars where Obi-Wan says to Anakin, uh, I don't even remember, uh, you have become the very thing you've sworn to destroy. You know this one? Have anybody seen this meme? I'm the only one that goes on Reddit all day. Okay, so here's what happens, right? You go, and there's like a picture of a fire truck, and it's on fire. <laughs> and the meme is, you've become the thing you were sworn to destroy. Or the other one I saw today, I was going to put on the board, the thing was, there was, um, you remember like in elementary school when your teacher was really good at making um, bulletin boards? She had like little paper borders, and they were like, she would always put like, two pieces of paper, but like a little bit off from each other, so it made a little pattern, and then whatever was the announcement in the middle. So there was a huge bulletin board filled with probably 30 or 40 pieces of paper, and it was above the printer, and it, it says like, um, how to save paper. And there were all these little things on it. And anyway, and it was, you've become the thing that you were sworn to destroy. Well, they could use one of these memes on the people of Israel. Right? You, you're supposed to be in there destroying this Canaanite religion, either through conquest or through being a light to the, the people. Right, But at the end of the day, these pagan religions are supposed to disappear because of Israel. But instead of disappearing, they've become the very thing that they were supposed to destroy. They've adopted these practices. And so God says, I'm not having it. Right, I, I'm going to destroy these high places. All right, back in Ezekiel, verse 4. Your altars will be destroyed and your shrines will be smashed. So an altar was like a big stone uh, platform that you would sacrifice an animal on, and then you would cook the meat on the altar. So you'd get your goat or whatever, and you'd, you know, and then chop it all up. Uh, again, I'm from San Francisco. I don't know how a farm works, but I think on farms, that's kind of stuff people do, you know? And you put the goat on the thing, and then you sacrifice it. So that was the big thing. Your altars will be smashed, but also shrines. Shrines were different than altars. So altars were kind of public spaces. You had them in the town square or at the high place or whatever, up on the top of the hill. Shrines were like little incense altars. You would burn incense or different things, and there would be a little statue of Baal or Astaroth or whatever false god you had in your house. And you would keep these kind of in your house. And what God says is, I'm going to smash these things. That's pretty strong language. right? You know the first two commandments in the Ten Commandments? The first one is, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second commandment is, don't do any of the stuff that people do when they worship the other gods. So it's kind of, it's, God's not messing around with the idea of idolatry, because idolatry is a magnification of the first sin, which is looking at God and saying, I don't want you to be the Lord. I want somebody else. I want to be the Lord in my own life, or I want that guy to be the Lord, right? And idolatry just kind of takes that sin and magnify it, uh, magnifies it. And God hates it because he knows idolatry ultimately hurts us. It's not good for us. We're not built for it. You remember Tide Pods when all the kids were eating Tide Pods? Okay, so I saw that like online and stuff and in the news and everything, and I always thought it was just kind of a joke, and then I Googled it, and uh, it was in 2018, and there were like, I mean, it's not funny, but like kids died, 2,000 kids went to the hospital from eating Tide Pods. I thought it was a joke. Nobody's stupid enough to eat laundry detergent, really? Like, come on. I mean, I was an idiot high school kid, but I never ate laundry detergent, you know what I mean? But apparently it was like a real thing. And they had to like go on TV and make commercials like, hey, by the way, Tide Pods are just for, you know, doing your laundry, kids. Don't eat them. You're not built for eating Tide Pods, right? And so you can imagine, right, a mom having to sit a kid down. Hey, maybe don't eat Tide Pods. You know why? Because this is not good for you. These, that's what God is doing here. He's saying, look, you worshiping these idols is just as dumb as these kids eating Tide Pods. You, you were built with a purpose. You, and he's like, and I know because I built you. And he says, this is how I put you together. And you were not put together. I did not build you to worship these false gods. And the only thing at the end of this is a hospitalization for eating laundry detergent. And so he's pleading with these people, cut it out. And he says, and I'm going to go and I'm going to take all the Tide Pods. I'm going to throw them into garbage. Right? That's what he's saying. I'm going to take all these idols. I'm going to smash them. The rest of verse 4. I will throw down your slain, your slain or the dead in front of your idols. I will lay corpses of the Israelites in front of their idols and scatter your bones in your altars. Wherever you live in the cities will be in ruins and high places will be desolate so that your altars will lie in ruins and be desecrated. Your idols, will, uh, your idols smashed and obliterated, your shrines cut down, and what you have made wiped out. So 
idols in the ancient world were seen as like, uh, sorry, not idols, uh, altars. In the ancient world were seen as like holy places. Like this is sacred space where they believed heaven. I mean, and the, a lot of this comes from, this is what God told his people, right? That the temple was the place where heaven kind of touches earth, right? Where his presence come in a special way. And they believed this about all these altars. Most of these religions, though, also had some kind of a holiness code. And most of those holiness codes had something along the lines of dead stuff ruins the holy, right? So if you put a dead body in a holy place, that holy place is now impure. It's unclean. And what God says is, you guys love these altars so much. Not only am I going to smash them, I'm going to make sure dead bodies fall on them so that not only are they broken, but now they're unholy. Now they're ruined. They're impure. They're unclean. You can't use it. It's kind of like the spiritual equivalent of poisoning a well or salting a field. You know what that is? Like armies used to do that back in the day. It's pretty mean, actually. You go through an area, you defeat the people, then you take a bunch of salt and you pour it all in the soil and you can never grow stuff there again. It's impossible to ever get that soil back to normal. And there's still fields like they find, you know, in the Middle East or they're still kind of salted from a thousand years ago or whatever. It's like, that's what God is saying. I'm going to ruin it so you guys don't get to do it again. Verse seven, the slain will fall among you and you will know that I am the Lord. So this is the, that I am Yahweh, right? That he uses his personal name there. This is the main theme of the book of Ezekiel, is the people have forgotten that Yahweh is their creator, that he is their God. He is their covenant God, their covenant Lord. And for hundreds of years, he's done everything he can to bring them back into his arms. But they have rejected him time after time after time. He sends a prophet, they kill the prophet, right? <clears throat> he sends... Uh, priests to do, you know, this really, he sends grace, all of it. They're rejecting it over and over. And so now he says, look, guys, we have reached the point in time. And the book of Ezekiel later on um, is going to play out why for a lot of this stuff. Like, what's his reasonings? He's going to unfold that stuff sort of slowly through the book. Um, but he basically says here, look, we've gotten to a point now where, you know, uh, you don't get to say you're sorry anymore. Repentance is done. The judgment and the wrath is coming. If you have kids, you probably know about this. Eat your pizza. I don't want to eat it. Eat your pizza. 20 minutes goes by. I'm not eating it. Fine. Throw in the garbage. <laughs> right? The, your chance to eat this pizza is done. Right? I'm hungry. Well, I should have ate the pizza. You know what I mean? Okay, I've never actually done that to my kids. But you know the idea. Right? You get the idea. At a certain point, you can't just keep telling your kids, well, if you don't, I'm going to. At a certain point, you have to actually do something. Or you have to go nuclear. And that's what God's doing here. He's like, look, I'm gonna, we've reached this point. All right, so we're going to skip verses 8 through 10 because they're not, I don't like them. No, I'm just kidding. We're going to get to them at the end of the, the, the sermon. We're going to skip that for a sec. We're going to jump to verse 10. Uh, sorry, verse 11. This is what the Lord God says. Clap your hands, stomp your feet, and cry out over the evil and detestable practices of the house of Israel who will fall by sword, famine, and plague. So now this is our eighth and final skit, kind of sign act that Ezekiel performs uh, in these four chapters. Um, what's this all about? It's called a taunt song uh, in biblical studies and like in the ancient world, not just biblical studies, but in the ancient world, they had these things called taunt songs. We do this too. Rappers do this, right? Don't they? What's it called? Diss track. Uh, in, uh, you know, my kind of... Um, 1999 to 2000 punk rock music, there was a band called Brand New. There were two bands, Brand New, Taking Back Sunday. By the way, I just went and saw Taking Back Sunday. They're old, but Duke can still move around a stage, you know what I mean? Anyway, so Taking Back Sunday and Brand New, these two bands. The lead singers had a love triangle with this woman. I don't know the whole story. I don't know the exact story. But there's the two lead singers and a love triangle, and you can imagine how great these two albums were, right? They wrote songs. Let me read you the lyrics. Here we go. I wrote it down. This is an actual song. Have another drink and drive yourself home. I hope there's ice on all the roads. It's hard not to sing this, by the way. And you ever read lyrics that you're used to screaming in the car when nobody's around? Anyway, and you can think of me when you forget your seatbelt and again when your head goes through the windshield. That's a real song. It's a great song. It's called 70 Times 7. That's from the Bible. Look it up. Um, so anyway, it's called a taunt song. He's writing about this guy. Uh, the good part of that story is eventually those two guys made up. And then they toured together, and then they would come out and sing the other guy's song that he wrote about him, you know? And it was, they would sing them on stage together, and it was all in good fun. But anyway, this idea of a taunt song is what Ezekiel is doing here. Face Jerusalem, stomp your hands, clap your feet. Er, the other way around there, you know what I mean? Clap your hands, stomp your feet, there you go. 
and sing this taunt song to these people. Right? Sing this song that's going to really upset them. Verse 12. This is the song, basically. The one, you thought that other song was bad. Uh, the one who is far off will die by the plague. The one who is near will fall by the sword. The one who remains and is spared will die of famine. In this way, I will exhaust my wrath on them. This is like a picture of total judgment. And it's not funny like the song from Brand New and Taking Back Sunday. Because those guys didn't really want each other to fly through the windows. right? This is like serious stuff. This is what God is saying to his people. Um, in a lot of criminal cases, um, and I know because you guys, I watch so much Law and Order. <laughs> so I know all about the legal system. right? But anyway, in criminal cases, uh, judges have what's called mandatory sentences, mandatory minimums, which means you commit a crime and he has to give you at least this much time right, in jail. But in a lot of cases, the judge has more flexibility. And they do a thing called the sentencing phase. So you've already been found guilty. You've got to come back to court. And you've got to sit there like the, who, the guilty party has to sit there. And the, the victim's family or the victim, if they're still alive or ho- however it works, has to get up and has to kind of give a statement about how this crime has affected them and their family and stuff so the judge can kind of make a decision. Um, if you remember, like, um, there was a lot of this on TV when um, uh, the sentencing of Larry Nasser, the guy who molested a bunch of the U.S. gymnasts, and it was a really, oh, I don't remember her name, the Christian girl who got up and, anyway, you can find it online. She was really amazing. Um, uh, so the, then the convicted person gets up and gets to speak as well. And then the judge weighs it all. In a lot of cases, the judge will say something like, well, because you've shown remorse and because the circumstances of your crime, I'm going to give you a lighter sentence. And here's what your sentence is. You're not going to get the max. But I recently saw a video online on one of my YouTube rabbit trails uh, that went the other way. The man was on parole, and he had held a, camp, a family captive at gunpoint during a home invasion, and I think during all that he killed somebody. I didn't get all the details. And the judge got up and ripped him a new one. He basically said, like, you have shown absolutely no remorse for your crime. I have no be- reason to believe that if you ever get out that you're not going to just do this again on your second day out. And so the judge gave the guy life without parole, no chance of ever getting out. Life without parole is, I mean, I guess besides the death penalty, is total judgment. There's no chance that this is ever going to turn around for you, right? Um, that's the imagery here. God is saying, this is life without parole. This is total judgment. I'm going to get all of this sin. This judgment will be so complete. He basically says here, um, I'm going to exhaust my wrath. I'm going to, this judgment is going to be so total that I'm going to be tired after pouring out my wrath. Now, that's obviously hyperbole, right? God, you know. He doesn't get tired the way we do, but you get the picture. Dang. Verse 13. You will know that I am the Lord when their slain lie among their idols and they're around their altars and every high hill on the mountaintops and under every green tree and every leafy oak, the places where they offered pleasing aromas to all their idols. I will stretch out my hand against them and wherever they live, I will make the land desolate waste from the wilderness to Ribla. Then they will know that I am Yahweh, that I am the Lord. Um, and then jump to chapter 7. The word of Yahweh came to me. So this is now another prophecy building on the first prophecy. Son of man, verse 2, this is what Yahweh says to the land of Israel. So in 6.1, it's go talk to the mountains. Now it's talk to the land. But it's all kind of the same idea, which is why we're doing it all in one sermon here. An end, an end has come on the four corners of the earth. The end is now upon you, and I will send my anger, I will send my anger against you and judge you according to your ways. So he's saying, look, this is the end. The the image is of finality, totality. Um, You know the guy that stands downtown and he has a sign that says, like, repent for the end is near? You know, that kind of thing, right? You you always see that guy in movies and stuff. There's usually one of them downtown somewhere. Well, this is, Ezekiel is now that guy. He's the repent for the end is near guy, except for there's no repent. Do you see that? In all of this, there's nothing like in the other prophets where God says, repent, or the end is coming. Ezekiel is the last guy. He's the end of the line. He shows up, and he's like, your time for repenting was when all those other guys were here. I'm not here to tell you to repent. I'm here because you didn't. And because you didn't, the end is coming. Right? And then I just want to point this out, too. He says, from the four corners of the earth, this is not a whole sermon on science and scripture, but scripture uses the phrase and the, the, uses the terminology of the world it was written in. And four corners is just a picture, right? It's just a way to say, what? The whole earth, 
right? So this is not a science textbook where you're supposed to go, where's the corners of the earth? Maybe we all got to be flat earthers and go to that conference in Arizona every year. By the way, you know what's my favorite thing? I saw that thing. Uh, <laughs> this has nothing to do with anything, but one of those flat earth societies, the guy was at the conference making fun of them on, um, I think it was Jimmy Kimmel or something. Anyway, and one of the, <laughs> the guys says, like, the Flat Earth Something Society, and the tagline said, uh, we have members all over the globe. Come on, that's funny, right? So anyway, we're not, we don't have to be flat earthers, four corners of the earth. Don't worry about it. All right, keep going. Back to the actual sermon. All right. <laughs> uh, he keeps going, verse 3, the end of 3. I will punish you for your detestable practices. I will not look upon you with pity or spare you, but I will punish you for the ways... Uh, for your ways and for your detestable practices within you, then you will know that I am the Lord. So what are these detestable practices? What does he mean? In the ESV, this, usually in, this, in our church, we read the ESV. Here for Ezekiel, we're reading a version called the CSB. It's pretty good too. Um, in the ESV, it says abominations, right? That's kind of old school King Jesus, abominations, right? Uh, it shows up in verses four, eight, and nine. What are these practices? Um, we're gonna get into this more into Ezekiel, but it was all kinds of things. It was the way that they treated the poor. It was the way that they treated the vulnerable, the widow and the orphan. It was the way they treated foreigners who were in their midst. There's all these rules about immigrants and foreigners coming into their midst and the way they're supposed to, to love them and serve them. And, you know, they didn't do any of it. But I mean, all that stuff is bad enough, but it's even worse than that. It's worshiping idols. And one of the ways they worshiped idols was, we were gonna learn later on, that the Israelites had become full on with the child sacrifice. And one of, the, one of the ways that this would happen. So when we read this, we're tempted to say, how could God do this to these people? This seems pretty mean. Uh, one, let me just tell you, we're going to get into that later on in Ezekiel 2, but let me just tell you, one of the ways they would do this is there was this big God, his name was Molech. And uh, they had this big kind of round statue of Molech, and he had these big arms like this. This is the worst thing in the Bible, by the way, one of them. It's up there, and this is what they did. And this statue had these big brass, I think, arms, and a giant mouth. And the mouth, the whole inside of the statue was hollow. And they would build a fire inside the statue, like a crazy hot fire. And then they would get together, and they would play drums. So you couldn't hear what was going on. And they would take a baby, and they would roll them down the arms, into the mouth, on top of the fire. And the drums were so you couldn't hear the crying and the screaming. And they would think, if I sacrifice this kid, to this God, the next year when it's time for the rain, the rain will come. I'll be more blessed than what I gave up. This is the kind of stuff that the, when I say they're practicing idolatry, this is the kind of stuff. Another spot they say, the king, uh, what did it say exactly? Like he buried his son in the wall. Most likely either buried him alive while they were building the wall. And they walled the kid in as a sacrifice or they killed the kid and used him as part of the wall. But still, it's child sacrifice. God is not having it, right? We talked all about in the, we read Luke for three years. We talked about the upside down kingdom and serving those at the bottom of society. That's what God is all about. And this is the exact opposite of that. This is taking those at the bottom of society and literally sacrificing them for their own gain. All right, keep going. Verse five. So this is what the Lord God says. Oh, sorry, wait, we already read that part, right? Uh, uh, no, we didn't. Verse five. This is what the Lord God says. This is what Yahweh says. Another, he, he starts another prophecy. Look, one disaster after another is coming. An end has come, and the end has come. It has awakened against you. Look, it's coming. Doom has come upon you. Inhabitants of the land, the time has come, the day is near. There will be panic on the mountains and not celebration. I will pour out my wrath on you very soon. I will exhaust my anger, again, exhaust my anger uh, against you and judge you according to your ways. I will punish you for your detestable practices. I will not look on you with pity or spare you. I will punish you for the ways, for your ways, and for your detestable practices, these abominations within you. Do you remember being a kid and making a parent or a teacher so mad that they almost couldn't even get the words out to describe how mad they were? Maybe that was just my, okay, you guys know about me, right? John, how could you be so, so irresponsible, so dumb, so reckless, careless, careless, idiotic, right? Okay, that was kind of my signature move, right? My parents just weaving this rich tapestry of how angry they were, of words about how angry they were, whatever it was that I was trying to get away with. Uh, it's kind of like that here. Look at these words to speak about what's going on. Take a look at the way he describes them. 
or describes what's happening, disaster after disaster. He calls it the end, doom. The time has come, the day is near. There will be panic, pour out my wrath, um, vent my anger, right? exhaust my anger, judgment, punishment, show you no pity, I won't spare. That's a lot of different ways to talk about the wrath of God in just a handful of verses. Why? So many different ways. Look at the end of verse 9. Then you will know that it is I, the Lord, who strikes. That is a terrifying verse when you read it in context. This is what we're going to struggle with in the book of Ezekiel. Do you see what it just said? When the city falls and the temple is destroyed, when Nebuchadnezzar burns your city to the ground, everybody, the temptation is going to be to ask, where was God when that happened? How could he let this happen to his people? How could he let this happen to his city, to his temple? And God's answer through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Habakkuk, he says, what do you mean, where was I? It was me. What? <laughs> That's, you need to let the force of that really hit you if you understand the book of Ezekiel. If you're going to understand all this stuff in the prophets. God doesn't say, I let Nebuchadnezzar come in and destroy the city of Jerusalem. He said, Nebuchadnezzar was the tool that I used to destroy the city of Jerusalem. Why? Because of your idolatry, because you've turned against me, because you're sacrificing babies and the way you're treating widows and orphans. You've become the Canaanites. You've become the very thing that you're supposed to destroy. Keep going. Verse 10. Here is the day. Here it is. Here, uh, sorry, here it comes. Doom is on its way. So the idea of the day of the Lord is this layered thing throughout prophecy. Sometimes it's a really good thing. The day of the Lord, Jesus is coming. And sometimes it's a terrible thing, depending on the context. Here it's a terrible thing. He says, the rod has blossomed. Arrogance has bloomed. Violence has grown into a rod of wickedness. None of them will remain. None of that crowd, none of their wealth, and none of the eminent among them. So when he talks about the blossoming rod, that doesn't mean anything to us. But anybody in this culture would have known immediately what this was. Back, way back in Numbers 16 and 17, the people rebel against Moses and Aaron and the leadership. And it's a whole thing. Fire comes down and consumes people. The ground opened up and swallowed a bunch of people. And when it was over, uh, in chapter 17, God goes through this exercise with the people. He's like, now, I'm going to show you who my real leader is. I want you to take all the heads of all the clans, right, or all the tribes, so the 12 guys, um, and put their staffs inside the tabernacle. In the morning, go in there and see which one of them blossomed, which one of them bloomed plants out of the dead staff. And whoever's that is, that's the guy that's the leader. And it was Aaron's staff that bloomed and blossomed. And so just bringing that up, God is kind of saying, you guys have been rebelling against me and the, my leaders and my people since all the way back then. This is not new. Right? This keeps happening. And then verse 12, uh, the time has come, the day has arrived. Let the buyer not rejoice and the seller not mourn. For wrath is on her whole crowd. The seller will certainly not return to what is sold as long as the buyer remains alive. For the vision concerning her whole crowd will uh, not be revoked. And because of the iniquity of each one, none will preserve his life. So he says when judgment comes, there's no point in being really good at the commercial stuff that you've been placing all your hope in. Uh, I just read a story about a while back when um, everybody in Hawaii got a message on their phone that was like, a nuke is coming. Do you remember this? And I found out about this because I heard uh, Jim Carrey talk about how he thought he was about to die, so he just sat on the beach and looked out at the water, and then nothing happened, and some time went by. And I was like, when did that happen? I Googled it. This really happened. Like, everybody in Hawaii, for like 10 minutes, thought they were going to die. If you got that message on your phone, and you really thought, genuinely thought, this is not a drill, this nuke is coming, what sense would it make to go on Amazon and order that Kindle you've been wanting? comes in three days, right? That's what he's telling the people here. Your wealth, all this stuff you thought, it doesn't matter anymore. And when the siege happens, we talked about this last week, we got people trading their Mercedes Benz and their Range Rover and whatever, right? They're Bentley for like a biscuit because I need something to eat, right? So that's what he's saying. Uh, verse 14, they've blown the trumpet and prepared everything, but no one goes to war for my wrath is on her whole crowd. The sword is on the outside, plague and famine are on the inside. Whoever is in the field will die by the sword, and famine and plague will devour whoever's in the city. He says inside, outside the city, it doesn't matter, you're not going to escape this judgment. 
verse 16, that survivors among them will escape and live on the mountains like doves of the valley. All of them will moan each over his own iniquity. So there will be a few survivors, um, and they're going to look at what's happened, and they're going to say, my sin and my rebellion did this. And those people are going to look at the, the destruction of Jerusalem, and they're going to fall apart. Verse 17, their hands will become weak, and all their knees will run with urine. And they will put, by the way, that's a good verse, uh, verse 17. Um, if you ever fill out a birthday card, you know that guy that always fills out a birthday card and writes a verse in it? You know what I mean? And it's always like, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, or something from the New Testament. Just as a joke, Sunday, put this verse. I think that would be really funny. And see, then that's how you know if they actually go look up the verse. Uh, by the way, Ezekiel, what is this? 717. Their hands will become weak and all their knees will run with urine. They will put on sackcloth and horror will overwhelm them. Shame will cover their faces and their heads will be bald. So these people are going to look at this and they're all just going to fall apart and weep and mourn and perform funeral rites. Then they will throw, verse 19, they will throw their silver in the streets. Their gold will seem like something filthy. Their silver and gold will be unable to save them in the day of the Lord's wrath. They will not satisfy their appetites or fill their stomachs, for these were their stumbling blocks that, I brought, about, uh, that brought about their iniquity. He appointed his beautiful ornaments for majesty, but they made their detestable images from them, their abhorrent things. Therefore, I have made these into something filthy to them. I will hand these things over to foreigners and plunder as plunder and uh, to the wicked of the earth as spoil, and they will profane them. And I will turn my face from them as they profane my treasured place. Violent men will enter it and uh, profane it. So basically, God predicts that they had a lot of trust that God would never let the temple be destroyed, right? And they had a lot of trust that all of my wealth and everything will be fine as long as it's all tied to the temple. And God says, no, people are going to come in. The temple is filled with these beautiful jewels and ornaments everywhere. There's gold everywhere. They're going to come in, and they're going to take it all. Verse 23, forge the chain, for the land is filled with crimes of bloodshed, and the city is filled with violence. So he's talking about chains. These chains are going to be used against you. Verse 24, I will bring the most evil of nations to take possession of their houses. That's a tough verse, right? Because we all have a home. We like our place. You spend time decorating it and fixing it up or whatever. And God's promise is that someday the bad guys are going to come and they're going to live in your house. You're going to be displaced and the couch you like to sit on, you know, like this is like in World War, like if God told the World War II generation, you like your couch? Well, someday the Nazis are going to sit in your house. Right, this is bad stuff. I will put an end to the pride of the strong, and their sacred places will be profane. 25. Anguish is coming. They will look for peace, but there will be none. Disaster after disaster will come. There will be rumor after rumor. Then they will look for a vision from a prophet, but instruction will perish from the priests and counsel from the elders. The king will mourn, and the prince will be clothed in grief, and the hands of the people of the land will tremble. So he says, look, you're going to look for your pastors and your leaders and everybody to, to give you some sort of guidance. And the priests aren't going to be able to help you. The prophets are going to go silent. The elders are going to have nothing to help you. The idiot king Jehoiachin, he's not going to be a pillar of strength. He'll be in grief. Why? He says at the end of that verse, I will deal with them according to their own conduct, and I will judge them by their own standards. And then they will know that I am the Lord. The most terrifying thing that you can hear from a just judge if you're a guilty person is, I'm going to give you exactly what you deserve. And that's what God is telling them. Your conduct has brought this on your own heads. Well, that's a depressing two chapters, isn't it? Right? That's not the one we read on Easter, huh? Right? For <laughs> well, let's jump back. Go back to chapter 6. I skipped this on purpose. So the way a lot of times they write in the Bible, we write very linear. You know, we write, like, here's the beginning, here's the middle, the bad guy, you know, like every movie. You think everything's good, and then right at the end, something goes wrong, and then they fix it, and then the happy ending, right? Like, we, we think very much like this. But a lot of the ways they write in Scripture is they kind of sandwich two truths, the main point in the middle, and they, the, the two similar ideas uh, wrapped around it. That's what happens here. The pinnacle of this passage is verses 8, 9, and 10. Let me read this to you. He says this right in the middle, but really, if we were writing this now, we would put it at the end. Yet I will leave a remnant when you are scattered among the nations. For throughout the countries, there will be some of you who will escape the sword. Then your survivors will remember me among the nations where they are taken captive. 
how I was crushed by their promiscuous hearts that turned away from me and by their eyes that lusted after their idols. They will loathe themselves because of the evil that they did, their detestable actions of every kind. And they will know that I am Yahweh, that I am the Lord. I did not threaten to bring this disaster without reason. So first, let's look at this, this, these verses. Look at the end. God says these survivors, the first thing is they'll know that everything that happened was for a reason. If you want to read more about this, go read the book of Lamentations. You know the book of Lamentations? It's Jeremiah sitting over the burning city of Ezekiel. I'm sorry, burning city of Jerusalem. And he writes this passage. And he writes this, and a lot of it is this. The second thing he says is that the purpose was to judge sin and destroy idols. That's what God was doing here. He was trying to purify the people. But there's a really interesting phrase here um, in the middle of verse 9. How I was crushed by their promiscuous hearts that turned away from me. God uses this image that we would all understand. Being cheated on, betrayal, broken hearts. These weren't strangers that worshipped idols. These were his chosen people. It's important to say that God is like us, but he's also not really like us. You know what I mean? Like, we can understand things about God, but we don't want to say it's an exact one-to-one correlation. So when God says, I stretched out my hand against you, he doesn't literally have hands. When he says, I changed my mind, well, he knows everything always, and he didn't really change his mind like we change our minds. When he says, my heart was broken, well, it, kind of, right? His heart's not broken like our heart is broken, but it's meant, we're meant to think about that time that we had a broken heart and go, whatever happened to God was kind of like that. And that's like the worst feeling in the world, isn't it? That sort of betrayal. And so he says, look, what I'm going to do, though, the very beginning of verse 8, even though you've broken my heart, even though my judgment had to come because of your sin, I'm still going to leave a remnant. Right? I am I'm the just and perfect God. And so there's this tension, right? That like, I'm going to, the, the judgment is going to be complete. And at the same time, though, I'm going to leave a remnant. Why does he leave a remnant, though? Why didn't he just destroy everybody? Like, one time, he was really mad at the people. He told Moses, you know what? I'm just going to kill all these guys. I'm going to start over. Get me a new people. And Moses pleads with him, and he doesn't. So why here doesn't he not just do that? Why doesn't he just destroy all the people? Well, because he made a promise to David and to Abraham. Right? To Abraham, he said, through you, all nations will be blessed. He told David, I'm going to build you a house. Right? And what he meant by that was, through you, the Messiah is going to come into the world. He can't destroy all the people because he's made these two promises and he's always faithful to his promises. All right, so that's the end of our text. At the beginning of the sermon, right, I talked about the pythons in Florida. And what I said was like, these pythons, we've tried everything to get rid of sin, but we haven't really made any progress. We kill one snake, 50 more sneak up behind us. The only way for sin to really be taken care of is what we saw in this passage that we don't really like. Hopefully you don't like this, right? Is for God to take care of all of the sin. If God were to only judge some sin, he would be very unjust. And what we saw in this chapter is he is a just judge. He always does something with a reason. He will deal with all idolatry and he will deal with all sin completely and utterly. What we saw in these two chapters is God told to Ezekiel to prophesy this judgment is coming. And when it comes, I'm not going to miss anything. Um, you know how they always break into our cars everywhere we go? You know what I mean? You're new here. You'll see. Uh, <laughs> oh, there you go. You'll see, the, you'll see the glass. Well, the last time they broke into my car, which was, what, the 10th or 11th time, uh, I called the guy. And the guy came to my house, and he vacuumed the car. And you know when they break a car window, it's not like the shards of glass, it, like into those tiny little pieces. Dude, I was finding these tiny little pieces of glass months later, six months later. I was pulling something out of the back of my van and a piece of glass popped up. Uh, I think part of it is the guy just did a terrible job, but also part of it is those things are really hard to vacuum up, right? Um, When God cleans up the glass, like when God judges sin, he gets every little piece. He's not like the guy that did my window. You're not going to be finding this stuff. You know, he he gets it all. Um, And that's kind of the point of this passage is that um, God always judges all sin because he's a perfectly just judge and because of how terrible sin is. And so the, when I say that, now that is terrible news for the enemies of God. If you're one of God's enemies, his judgment is total and he is going to handle it all at the judgment seat. 
And we're going to talk later in the book of Ezekiel about how that should drive us to be the most loving and missional kind of people because we really believe in ju the judgment of God. And we don't want San Franciscans to face the judgment of God. We want them to face the grace and the love of God. We want them to run into his arms. We're going to talk about that kind of later. I'm just going to say for now, if you're the enemies of God, that's terrible news. But for God's people, for the people who were his enemies and that he has brought into the family instead, this is great news. The fact that God always judges all sin completely is great news. Because in his grace... God has promised not to leave everyone to judgment. He's promised this remnant. I'm going to save some of the people. And I'm going to deal with their sin. And this is what the cross of Jesus is all about. Our sin, all of it, every tiny little piece was laid on Jesus at the cross. And all the horror of the last couple of chapters that we've read of Ezekiel, the siege is going to be so bad that they're eating people. Right? This, this wrath is going to bring sword and famine and all this stuff that we kind of, uh, we go, oh, really? All of that is what was laid on Christ on the cross. And his sacrifice was enough. It was enough to cover all of your sin. Every law you break, every errant thought, every idol you place trust in, all of that was taken care of at the cross. 1 John 1, 7 says, but if we walk in the light, you know this verse, famous verse, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Right? The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. How much? All of it. So in this chapter, in these chapters, we learn that God is the only one who can stomp out all the snakes. He's the only one that can get every sin. And he does it by pouring out his wrath. And as terrible as that is for us, the good news of the gospel is for us, his people, that wrath doesn't get poured out on us. It got poured out on Jesus in our place. And so the way that this applies to you then as a follower of Jesus is I want you to take comfort in this idea that you're still a sinner. There's still snakes all around you, right? We're not perfect yet until we get into eternity. It's called glorification. We're going to be rid of the sin in our lives. We're not there yet. And so now while you're in this world, you're going to struggle with sin. And the enemy is always going to come up behind you and whisper into your ear. I can't believe you did it again. Can, what is wrong with you? How could a God so good love somebody like you? He can't. But the gospel shouts over every lie of the enemy, every piece of glass was swept up, every snake was crushed. God's judgment is always complete. When he pours out his wrath, he doesn't miss anything. He paid for it all, right? He's killing the snakes for you. That's the good news of the gospel. You don't have to kill the snakes. You don't have to, to what's the other one? You don't have to vacuum up the glass, right? God is the one who does it for you. Amen?